Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. And I try to sell the idea of let's build a partnership and uh, you know, create a project together to use quantum computing to help solve an issue, an algorithm, an optimization problem that as of today has not been able to find a solution that is cost-effective and quick enough to be relevant. Three, two, one. My name is Esprit Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create The Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. I am Mike Veldhuis, business owner of the Dutch IT company Nalta and podcaster from the Netherlands. I just love the Women in Tech podcast by the talented Esprit Devora. It's made with passion and creativity. It gives insight into the world of inspirational women from all around the globe. But most of all, it's fun to listen to. Esprit Devora truly is the girl who gets it done. Welcome back to the Women in Tech podcast, celebrating women in tech from around the world. My name is Angie Carrillo and I'm your guest host for this episode. With me today is Debbie Perevicius from Mexico, living in Finland. She is the first Mexican woman to graduate with a PhD in physics from Stanford University. Welcome, Debbie, to Women in Tech. Thank you so much for that great introduction. I'm excited to be here. And I'm so excited to talk to, about you, about your journey in science and technology and what you're doing with quantum physics. And I'm just excited to have you here. You've been, you know, like always sharing with your mission and inspiring more women in tech. So for me, it's an honor to have you here. Oh, thank you. So... Let's start from the beginning, De Debbie. I would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us how you got ex first introduced to the world of physics, to the world of tech, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Sure. So I grew up in Mexico City, and I was part of the Jewish community My uh, in Mexico. My grandparents had emigrated from Lithuania, had escaped in the 1920s from the complex and, and pretty bad situation in Eastern Europe. And they arrived in Mexico without knowledge of the language and, uh, you know, without any money and all that. And they, they you know, in just one generation, the kids, uh, that is my father's generation, were able to go to university and they were thriving. Uh, and it was a very uh, well-to-do community. Uh, but it was quite conservative in the sense that you had to conform to the norms and you had to kind of, you know, like a, a typical first generation or second generation immigrate, immigrant um, 
community, they wanted to stick to one another. And there were norms like you should kind of, uh, you know, do the things that have worked for us for many, many years. And so when I was a young girl, I, my father was a civil engineer, may he rest in peace. And I recall that when he took me around to his uh, building of large projects, like hyd hydraulic dams and bridges and all that. And I was like two to five years old, traveling with him all across Mexico and, and looking at all these things. I had endless questions about how do you put the beams here and the columns and how does the bridge stay, uh, uh, you know, that way without breaking. And, you know, like any five-year-old, all these, you know, inquisitive concepts uh, that I had that I, I needed to satisfy my curiosity. And, you know, little by little, when I was, you know, growing and coming of age, I got the message by my mom, who was from Guatemala, also of the uh, similar community, and by my teachers in school, that being so curious, especially about engineering and science and mathematics, was not a very feminine trait. Unfortunately, uh, my mother told me uh, when I was 11 years old that uh, to be careful not to tell uh, the teachers and other kids in school that I liked math because that would intimidate boys and maybe in the long run I wouldn't be able to get married. And I always laugh, laugh and joke about it because it almost happened. <laughs> and <laughs> and it, it, it truly uh, made me you know, afraid of developing the skills that I needed to in order to actually do math. And so I was told, uh, you know, to pick a career that was more feminine, to act more according to the norms of, you know, wanting to find a husband early on in my early 20s and having kids and a family. And although that's a, you know, pretty respectable path for many people. It was just not the path for me at all. And I was so afraid of being rejected and not fitting in that I learned to hide my curiosity. So in high school, when it came time to go to college, I recall that the counselors in school said, hey, why don't you start studying philosophy? It's a, a career in the humanities that's very similar to science. Not really, but they told me, you know, they, you kind of ask questions about life and why are we here for and whatnot. But it's still, you know, widely acceptable because it's, you know, not very demanding and, and all that. So, you know, you should do that. And I got accepted right away and I started studying two years of philosophy. And in Mexico, we had the European system uh, that not you know, quite dissimilar to the Bachelor in Arts of the U.S., where you can study many subjects. In Mexico, it was just one subject for four years, and you become a super expert, but you're not allowed to, you know, take courses from different areas. And I recall being fascinated by logic and all these very mathematical aspects of philosophy, but being quite bored, you know, about the limits of just thinking about a topic because for me mathematics is a language a tool that helps you understand and make sense of the world and then experiments in physics corroborated you know corroborate theories and so that means that what you're actually uh thinking about how the world works is correct within certain limits, but, you know, we get increasingly more accurate approximations of what nature is about. 
So I was fascinated by that. And, and uh, so, you know, two years in, I realized that my passion and my love for physics was not going to go away. And I didn't have the support of my family. And I also didn't have the financial support because in Mexico, uh, we paid an eighth of what universities cost in the U.S. And when had to hide behind my parents' back and everyone's back, and I sent my applications as a transfer student to several universities in the U.S., I thought there's no way that I could ever make my dream come true. But I was extremely lucky that a small university in Massachusetts by the name of Brandeis really liked my application and happened to give a full merit-based scholarship to two international students per year. And I did some extra uh, testing and I ended up winning uh, the full scholarship, which really cemented my path to, to success. And I'm always grateful for that opportunity. That is amazing. And, you know, like, I, I want to share with you that your story resonates so much with mine, because just like you, I emigrated and it was through a full scholarship that I was able to, to be able to study. Right. But just like you, uh, uh, well, unlike you, I got really bored with my major. I major in business, but I never had the courage to switch careers. I always like econom economics um, or some other science, right? Like something way more with with a lot more math. But when I was already studying. Um, I was like, I'm already in this tract. And as you were saying, in Mexico, you have to pick very young your major. And I think that's a, a huge responsibility because then you feel like, oh, you know, based on this decision, I have to carry on what I'm going to work on most of my life, right? So how is that that thinking? I mean, were you doing it behind behind your family's back because you were saying that you didn't have another emotional support and not the financial support either. Were you doing it behind their back? So take us a little bit, you know, like back on past Debbie, what was going on through your mind and how you find courage, right? To, to make that switch. And I, yeah, find that amazing. Yeah, I think hindsight is twenty twenty. So right now it can be perceived as courage and strength. But back then, there was a lot of insecurity and there was a lot of fear. I recall, so just to go back to my story a little bit, I, I met an amazing graduate student uh, from India that became my mentor. His name is Rupesh, and I actually spoke with him a few days ago. And it's, it's really a beautiful story because I was really scared of taking any course with mathematics, but I got the courage to take just an introductory astronomy class. And it was one of those large courses where there were 120 uh, freshmen or, or I don't know, uh, uh, sophomore kids in the class. And I was sitting in the back and not too much math, but I was able to start asking questions of the teaching assistant, who was this student, Rupesh. And we became fast friends. And he told me that I was 
extremely curious, that my eyes would light up when I asked him questions, that I wasn't just satisfied with getting a, a good grade in the homework, that I really wanted to know beyond the, the astronomy class. I, I wanted to know about quantum mechanics and thermodynamics. And we would walk, you know, in the forest in, in beautiful Waltham, Massachusetts, and I would just keep asking him questions. And, uh, and then one time in one of our walks, I had tears in my eyes and I said, Rupesh, I know I probably won't be able to do it. Okay. I've been told my entire life that I can't do this but I don't want to die without trying to do physics. And he just looked at me, grabbed the phone and called his advisor, who was the head of the um, graduate student committee at Brandeis. And he said, hey, we have a student here who's extremely passionate, but she's a transfer student. So she only has a scholarship for two years. And the physics major normally takes four years. What can we do for her? He called me into his office and he said, you know what, there's a precedent for this. Ed Witten, who I knew, and if the audience doesn't know, is the father of string theory, a really famous genius, did this at Brandeis. He switched many years before me from history to physics. And so he said, I'm going to do the same. Here's a book, which was an alien language at the time for me, called Div, Grad, and Curl which was vector calculus in three di dimensions. And he said, if by the end of the summer, in, this, in two months, you're able to master this material and we'll test you, um, you, you'll be able, we'll let you skip through the first two years of the physics major. So you'll join in, your, in the junior year classes and you'll have only two years and you'll be able to complete the entire major in only two years. It sounds easy, but if it wasn't for the help and the the encouragement and the support of Rupesh, I would have never been able to do it. He decided in two months to mentor me and tutor me every single day. And we had no time because it was Shams books, these very practical books without theory because there was no time. Saturday, derivatives. Sunday, integrals. Monday, first three chapters of classical mechanics. And you get the idea. And by the end of the summer, I passed the test and Rupesh on purpose sort of disappeared into the background so that I would become independent. And I struggled. But after two years, I was able to complete the full physics major as well as the philosophy one, which I, I finished as well with honors uh, thesis on, on, in both subjects. And I was extremely proud. And that, you know, made combined with a rebellious spirit that I had always had from a young age, that just sort of clicked inside me and made me go for the stars. Like I wasn't going to stop then because finally I had managed to get what I, what everybody had told me that I would never be able to get. Yes. And I love that one, the rebellious spirit that if you have done what you've been told by your community, by your family, by your country that you could do, you wouldn't have accomplished None of the things that, you know, let you to have the impact that you've had with your trajectory until today. But second, I love that you mentioned that it wasn't, you know, like you were self-made, like it wasn't just you uh, and the role of, you know, like mentors and examples. And sometimes, you know, they might look like you, but sometimes they might not look like you, like Rupesh 
wasn't a Mexican immigrant that, or a female. But regardless of that, you find him, you know, like a mentorship that you were able to connect and learn from him. And, and also for any men, right, listening out there, how important their role is. Because in tech and in science, where it's usually male-dominated industries, there are going to be more men. So it's up to them also to change the narrative and to change and to inspire more people that are curious about technology, they're curious about a specific industry or, or, or whatever they, they are trying to, you know, open up the doors, I think. It's so Absolutely. So and I think the story with Rupesh gets even more interesting because traditionally you pay people that tutor you and offer you so much support. And I always wanted to for these two months. I mean, he, after all, made my dream of becoming a physicist come true. And he said to me that when he was growing up in India, in Darjeeling, like the tea, which is a town in the Himalayas, there was an old man who used to climb up to get to his little uh, town, into his house, and he would climb up every week to teach him and his sisters the tabla, which is a musical instrument, math, and English. And the family always wanted to pay this old man for all that he did for the kids. And this old man said, no, the only way you could ever pay me back is if you do this with someone else in the world. And it's this beautiful pay it forward philosophy that Rupesh transferred to me. He said the same thing to me. And that started my mission in life, which has remained to inspire and encourage other minorities, especially women and Hispanic women who, like myself, feel attracted to STEM, but who for some reason, whether it be financial or social, feel that they cannot achieve their dreams. So that was you know, what really led me on that path. And then I went back to Mexico. I took some more courses and everybody was telling me, you know, patting me in the back, like, great, you got it out of your system. And I was like, no way. No, I want more. And, you know, this again, this pressure to conform to the norms. I, I recall being only like 24, 25 years old and people telling me, oh, you're a spinster. You will never be able to get married because you have this confusing and complex degree and, and feeling so inadequate and fearing so much. And that's when I, I said, you know, I want to commit to science. This is my thing. And I started applying to graduate school in the U.S., and I was studying physics, uh, a master's in physics at the public university in Mexico, UNAM. And I went to my advisor's office, Jose Luis Mateos, really nice uh, professor. And I said, Jose Luis, you know, I, I've been happy in Mexico for a year and a half, but I want to go back to the U.S. because I'm extremely curious and I want to continue pursuing physics like to the stars. You know, and he said, OK, you know, sad that you're going to leave, but okay, where I'll support you. Where have you applied? And I said, well, there's a few universities. And then I wrote an email to this guy named Steve Chu, who's at a school called Stanford in California, because he's the first one that has manipulated single strands of DNA. And I kept talking and then Jose Luis's jaw dropped and he's like, what? You wrote to Steve Chu an email? I go, yeah, why? 
<laughs> he said, you, ju- you don't realize, but he's just won the Nobel Prize a few, three months ago. And I recall feeling really nervous because I'm not shy by any means, but just thinking that I wrote to him so casually, like, hey, I like your work. Can I come and visit? And, you know, it was challenging. But a few months after my conversation with him and, and you know, doing the GRE and the, the physics test and whatnot, I got accepted directly to work in his group. And he, by the way, was the secretary of energy during Obama's administration. And, uh, you know, just jumping from being somebody who had half of the background that any other physics student applying to Stanford had to all of a sudden working with the current Nobel Prize winner in physics was extremely challenging and, and difficult. And that's what made my story not just a story of embellished success and beauty. No, it, it's a story of failure and challenges. And that's when I learned that in the end, the ones who win and the ones who succeed in anything are not the ones for whom things are easy, are not the ones who are innately talented at something. In the end, the ones who succeed in anything are the ones who have resilience, the ones who are able to get up and continue after any obstacle threatens to cut their dream short. And that made me what another Nobel Prize winner who I work with, uh, Bob Laughlin, he called me, besides being a physics, uh, you know, great at physics, you are a warrior, he said. And, and true scientists have to be warriors because you have to fight to make new ideas stick and push them forward. And, and I do think that I have that in my blood, you know, not only being insanely curious uh, and, and perseverant at whatever I want to do, but also just being able to fight for what I want. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so let's recap. It's one, it's an amazing journey that right. Debbie has been mentored, not by one Nobel laureate, but by two, you know, like she had two Nobel prize winners as her mentor and she worked for them. So that for once is, is, a lot challenging because I imagine, you know, the, the level of competition that you have with your peers and for, for those, those jobs is, it's quite, it's quite big, but two, as an immigrant, you know, coming from Mexico, let's go back to, to the first thing that you said, like people were calling you a spinster when you were 25. And the thing is that people don't understand certain things that coming from other cultures, right? And other subcultures and communities, like in Mexico till this day, you know, like women are expected to be pretty, be beautiful and get married as a grand achievement of her, her life, right? And this is this is something that I experienced too when, when I was living there. And you're so much younger than me and you still experience that. Wow. Exactly. Because during that during the 25 year old or something, you still you were starting to see all your friends are getting married and and the society pushing you to make a decision that might be right for you or might not be, but it's so individual, right? 
that nobody should be pushing you. But okay, so you had that, you had society pushing you, you had the pressure of that, but you made a commitment with science, with physics and with your career. And you said like, no, you know, like I'm going to be focusing on this. I'm going to put my career first, my work first, and a legacy that I want to leave into this world. And I'm going to work for the very best in, in physics in the Nobel Prize. So I also want to to talk a little bit more about the diversity and the lack of diversity that there is in this uh, this 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 world most prestigious science awards, right? Um, out of from from 1901 that this uh, the Nobel prizes have been awarded, right? From all of those over 900 awardees have been men. And only 61 have been women. That's like around a 6%, right? And from those, only 26 Nobel laureates have been women that, that they have been um, specifically in, in, in the STEM, right? In science, in, in science and technology and engineering uh, and math and economics, right? So... In in that very male-dominated industry, how was working, you know, like with a Nobel laureate? And I know that he's he's your friend, he's your dear mentor. Was was there any different? Was there a very difficult um, d- dynamics with your peers, with the other other people? Because I, I thought only tech was very male dominated until I dip my toes into science and and biotech for a little bit. Uh, I couldn't believe like how much of how much more male dominated things could be. And, and sometimes it didn't even come from men. The attacks could come from also other women or older women that had to, you know, be in this um, very male-dominated industries, and they just thought that because they have done, uh, they have endured that, you have to endure it as well. So I don't know, like, t- tell me a little bit of, of about those years. How, how was it? Um, I mean, and you're still working in in this very male-dominated space. So uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about some challenges there. Yeah, I mean, I see three like super interesting and deep lines of conversation here. One is the history of the Nobel Prize and its lack of diversity, and that's a huge issue. A second one is what I and other women experience as a consequence of the lack of diversity and lack of education of the older men that are you know, staying in, in chair as chairs of departments and, and whatnot. And, you know, the third one is, um, you know, about what sort of what you can do about it and, and, and you know, how do you change the dynamic, especially of interest is with other women, you know, that, that sometimes because they've had to fight so much to get to where they are, they're not always the most welcoming to younger women who may have it easier. So I, I think I, you know, in the interest of time, I, I'm gonna talk to you uh, personally about how those years were for me. 
And then if we want, we can go into one of the other two. But I, I got to say that, uh, you know, interestingly, Steve Chu was very cutthroat. Gender didn't matter. Uh, like, really, he treated everyone with, I'm going to say it, and I hope it doesn't sound badly, but it's it's kind of like how a lot of physics professors were and he treated everyone with a little bit of disdain like we were nothing yet you know like he was this brilliant uh oracle of knowledge and so you know when i was there there was only one woman in the entire team and i remember that we were doing experiments in optics and so there was this optical table which is a very delicate way of placing lenses and all these things uh you know across and uh, to shine lasers on it to study some material like a DNA or a protein or what that. And uh, the incredible competition in Situ's lab was so hard. Like I, there were people who would, it's almost as if my body was invisible. They would literally just bump into me as they were crossing diagonally across the room to get some tool at the other end. And I wasn't there and I had to endure that. There was no way to ever stand out because there were people there and postdocs who spent all nighters every single day and you know it was just incredibly stressful and uh you know not an easy place to survive whereas with bob laughlin it was really interesting because he is known till today as a very kind of larger than life personality. He's also quite large in physically as a person, very tall, very big, and he big voice and just a you know a wonderful person. But a lot of people fear, feared and fear him. Like he would in colloquia where some visiting professor was giving a talk, if he didn't agree with them, he would open his newspaper in the first row and start yelling like, that's BS, that's BS that's bullshit. You know, he would start saying things like that. And of course, people were terrified. And, you know, he was not very polite at all, many, many times. And so people told me, be careful. You should be scared. How can you work with him? You should make a a wise choice, stay away from people like that. And the truth of the matter is he hadn't had a female student in many, many years, definitely eight years, because the last student uh, that he had eight years ago, I met. So and he treated me, I don't know, his wife probably trained him very well, but he treated me with a lot of respect. He would immediately, like he would be swearing and and yelling at other people in the team. And then I would come in the room and he would be like, hey, yes, ma'am. <laughs> he just changed his tone. And nevertheless, he was very, very strict with me. I'm not going to say he, you know, gave me an easy path, but he respected me an enormous amount. Later, I brought him to visit Mexico City and I brought him to the Jewish Community Center to give a talk for hundreds of people that they, so that they could finally see what I had been up to for all these years. And he, he said something really sweet on, on stage. And he said, you know, Debbie is, surpasses, uh, you know, most of my students, not only because, you know, she's uh, very smart in physics and all that, but because she knows how to communicate complex concepts in lay term in lay terms and makes you know technology and science easy and entertaining to understand until today because i have hosted several tv shows science tv shows and he writes to me he says you know i watch you on nova or pbs and you know you're amazing at explaining he really appreciated 
that aspect of science. And, and so I think being a woman made me struggle in many different ways, but it also made me have a special kind of relationship with Bob uh, that uh, was just very sweet and kind that I know probably a lot of people wouldn't even in physics that know him wouldn't believe I'm saying this, but, <laughs> but it's always been like that. That That's so interesting, right? That, that you say like, oh, these, these both professors wearing, no, they were not known by being polite, right? Like, but because they, they were men, right? Like, their authority um, that does they don't have to be polite but if women if as women we are not polite then we're called bossy or we're called like that we are I don't know like names or something but but it's so interesting that you know like yeah maybe in the lab eh, during that you had to face certain certain things and not being respected as well, but you were respected by this very, you know, like well-known smart men that are Nobel Prize winners, right? And they could see that the value that you're giving was not only on on the on the theoretical part, but also on the way that you communicate. And I think that's so so interesting that you've done with your career that you communicate really hard things like quantum physics in simple terms with your TEDx, with all the initiatives that you've been part of and you've been paying it forward as a mentor for other girls and with your shows with National Geographic. I think amazing way for you to, you know, like communicate really hard concepts and get more people interested into the world of technology, right? So right now, I mean, now we, we talk so a little bit about your past. Right now in the present, Debbie, like what are you working with quantum physics, building the first quantum computer in Finland? What are you doing there in Finland? Like I, I'm, I want to know more about current Debbie, what you're working on and the initiatives that you have. Sure. So uh, we applied to a program that seeked to attract tech talent from around the world and bring them to Finland. And we, like thousands uh, of other people, applied in 2021. And we were the first uh, family selected uh, because of my profile as a scientist. And so we came, we moved to Finland in May of 2021 with the expectation of staying in Helsinki for three months. And eventually we loved that summer. Everybody says, yeah, of course, because it was a summer because <laughs> the winter is another story. But we loved it so much. The work-life balance was great. I was able to get a job as a lead scientist in the quantum computing team at the largest research and development center in Finland called VTT. And uh, so, and that work expanded my horizons because I was able, even though the quantum computer, it's a soup, there are many types of quantum computers these days, but the one we were building was a superconducting made of superconducting devices. And uh, it was not by any means uh, competing the world stage in terms of size or efficiency or 
speed. However, it was a big goal and a big deal that, uh, you know, this small country was able to build this quantum computer and set itself in the global uh, stage for quantum computers. And so working with the team, I learned an enormous amount of uh, hardware, being back in the lab and seeing how these devices are created in the clean room, all the microelectronics, the Josephson junctions and all these technical details that go into it. I talked a lot with a software team and I was able to use my business savvy and communication skills to bridge the gap between this very theoretical, nascent, deep tech uh, area that is going to hopefully, if it works as we think it's going to work, revolutionize the way we do many things today, and business people that want to know, should I get into quantum? Should I not? How much should I spend? You know, should I do it in the cloud, in-house, etc.? And so I went around, and I still do it, to... Uh, biotech companies, financial companies, chemical companies, and I try to sell the idea of let's build a partnership and uh, you know create a project together to use quantum computing to help solve an issue, an algorithm, an optimization problem that, as of today, has not been able to be to uh, find a solution that is cost effective and and uh, quick enough to be relevant. Yeah. So I like that you say that you are the bridge, right? Like from really deep hard tech to translate it into normal language for business people to make decisions, right? So even though so even though that you major in theoretical physics, right now you're applying solutions, right? And I find that really interesting. I would like to to know a little bit more about, um, you know, like certain uh, learnings that brought you here, and maybe some some failures as well. Uh, because I, I was remembering that before we started the call, uh, you mentioned that even though that you, you you move here during the pandemic, at the beginning of pandemic you were in another project and it kind of fell through. So. Yeah, I would like to know a little bit more because these two years have been a little bit of confusion for a lot of people. I so. know, I know. And, and there's a lot of regret and a lot of confusion and, and careers have been kind of modeled. And, and, and I've seen a lot of super talented women in tech sort of get a little bit stuck uh transferring from one job to another lat laterally, but not being able to break this seemingly invisible glass ceiling and kind of go up in, in the stage that they are ready for and get a, a C-level or an executive position in tech. And, and it, it saddens me because I have not seen very good solutions to this problem. And, and yes, I was a vice president at Kaplan, the education company, uh, which owned Metis, which is this really nice company where my title there was chief data scientist. And basically, I, the, the CEO, Jason Moss, was an amazing person and, and really uh, uh, an incredible mentor. He and I sort of built this company from the ground up. Of course, he did all of the, the setup. He was there before me. But he, he trusted me and he gave me all this leeway and we were a data science training company. So we basically, our product was 
uh, educational algorithms, was software product uh, that we used to not only have a boot camp and train people who wanted to pivot their careers into data science, but also to train corporations, whether it was about automation for Wall Street clients or uh, deep learning for recognition of images for a, a retail um, internet company, you know, all kinds of, of, of clients. And so, you know, what I did was, uh, well, built the curriculum, maintained it in GitHub, hired the entire team of 24 uh, senior data scientists uh, that rotated, built and created uh, the offices in, because we, we were in New York. So we opened offices in Seattle, San Francisco and Chicago. I moved to San Francisco and taught the boot camp there. And, you know, it was really successful. But unfortunately, when the pandemic hit, all of our programs were in person. And all of a sudden, we couldn't meet in person. And sadly, we didn't have the infrastructure ready to transition quickly enough to put all of our programs into online. And so that made my job um, and many of other people within Medis uh, redundant. And, and so, you know, I was kind of looking for something interesting to do so the finland opportunity was great but it was there was sadness that i had lost this incredible role uh, growing this company and running so many things in it so now that your position right as as a mentor as a director and you have people you know that you work with um how you know like how do you one mentor them uh, and and analyze you know because now you you're being the bridge right between the deep tech and business people and and i i imagine that you have teams that you have to connect with and and also empower them into leadership positions right like as you were saying there during the pandemic actually the gender gap i think it, it went Uh, a few years further down for us to uh, get into equality, right? So now it's really important that women are, you know, empowered, well, not empowered is not the word, but are put into leadership positions because as, as women, when we are in these C-level positions, we tend to care more about the development of other people's career. And I know that you... with with all your experience of mentoring and stuff like and your personal history like how do you navigate that how how are you being a leader now a leader for also the tech but also for you know like the business partners that you have right like how do you manage to is it different to be a leader in deep tech uh, teams and when you're talking to the business teams, is it different how you navigate leadership or is it the same? I mean, those are all really good questions that I think I try to, I have, as I age and I become older, I realize how important it is to have role models and model with your behavior that you can follow your dreams and you can go uh, far. Uh, I had the honor and an ex incredible experience to become a mom in the past uh, six years. And, you know, that in the beginning, I thought that would stop me. But, you know, I have managed to get my 
energy back and and i you know i was named a, one of the top linkedin voices in quantum and and the way i lead is definitely by bringing into the fold as many uh, passionate minorities as i can i do a lot of public speaking i participate in many initiatives uh, uh i was going to say uh you know i i i mentor and whatnot i i have i give, gave a talk with cheryl sandberg about proactive leadership which is very important for me i participate with the american association for the advancement of science the if then initiative which built 3D um, life-sized sculptures of 120 women in STEM, which are being exhibited in Washington and in Dallas. And uh, I'm a mentor for the Code with Clossy, a, a program and, and all of those things. And I, I, I must say that uh, I, I think that I love how people talk about not wanting mentors or being empowered anymore. That's kind of outdated. What we need today are champions. And the difference is that a mentor will help you when you come to them and say, I have an issue, how can I solve it? Whereas a champion will actually propose you for promotions, more responsibility, better initiatives when you're not in the room. And that's what's important. And you really notice when uh, there are women. I recently opened uh, the technology uh, prize. Uh, it's called the Millennium Tech Prize, which is 1 million euros. Euros. That's almost like a Nobel Prize given here in Finland. And I was opening the session on diversity and the prime minister, Sanna Marin, uh, came and actually stayed during my session and watched and we were talking and she gave, you know, the statistics in Finland for women leaders are not that positive. Only 7% of CEOs of publicly traded companies are female and all this. And for me, it was really interesting because in the discussion panel that I led, there was a the, the oldest woman and she was clearly kind of of another generation, a generation of my parents. And she was the most fierce leader. She answered questions that, well, were way more courageous and more pro uh, getting women into higher positions than any of the other younger generation women. In fact, when I sat in the audience after the panel, I happened to be sitting next to a young woman and she said, yeah, the reason why I'm here is because I didn't even apply for this incredible leadership position, but it was the woman in your panel that uh, seeked me out and knew about me and told me, you should apply. You have great chances. And then she picked me and trained me and made the necessary connections so that I could lead in this new position. And I was, I'm still in awe of her. And I want to see those women be celebrated. You know, she's... That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So yeah. have you seen that that happens way more often in Finland than in the US, for example? No, sadly, uh, I was expecting that for sure. But I learned that there is something that in the public speaking world people talk about called the Nordic paradox, which happens in Nordic countries where uh, even though there's more equity in politics and in many other professions like gardening and truck driving and things like that, you do see a lot of women do, do that, which is you know very surprising coming from the US and from Mexico. But there is still a huge lack of female representation in STEM. 
And uh, it's called the Nordic paradox because even though they have the chance to do so, they still follow extremely traditional roles. And it is not known exactly why this happens. And many people think it's simply lack of role models because, you know, my, my daughter is going to first grade here in a public school. And, you know, I see that, you know, many of the moms and many of the role models that are presented to them have very typically what we used to call female uh, careers. And I offered to donate the posters that an initiative, the plenary did for a lot of us women in science. And I said, can we put them in the school? And they were like, oh, wow, that's interesting, but why? Like they were very kind of confused because they haven't even thought of it as an issue. Like for them, it's so natural that boys go into those careers and women don't. And even at VTT, I'm one of, we are two women in a team of, I don't know, 30 some men. So yeah, mm. it's it's actually not better. Yeah, because you, you would imagine that the happiest country, right? It's like one of the, the happiest country in the world well, would be- That's a great well, PR machine. I wouldn't really- <laughs> <laughs> Well, you come from Mexico. I actually think Mexico is really happy. It's a yes. really happy place. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> and People the sunshine always helps. With what they have. They're satisfied because the, the population is very homogeneous and everybody has a safety net good healthcare, uh, good education, everyone has food. There's no extreme poverty like you would see in the US. There's no going bankrupt because you have a health problem and you don't have health insurance. You know, all those problems definitely don't exist here. But people don't smile very much. <laughs> I gotta say, okay. <laughs> happy, happy, depends okay. how you define it. <laughs> okay, okay. Perfect. But I really like that you you mentioned that, you know, like those women, even though that they didn't raise their own hand, you know, like sometimes their champion is raising their hand for for them. And I think we need more more of that. Right. And and we need to to open up the doors for more women, either our either our peers or you know, like, or not, like, it doesn't have to be just mentoring little girls, or it doesn't have to be just mentoring younger generations. I think even if we do it with each other as peers, I, yeah, I, I read, you know, like somewhere that usually people want to network up, right? Like we want to network and, you know, like get connected with someone that, you know, like is, I don't know, like in a much better, you know, like top position or something. Um, but is the people that you network with at the same level to your peers that then later you become so, you know, like united, you become friends and you've been through all these challenges together. That is when, you know, like later in life, you know, they become, you know, also CEOs and investors and founders and stuff. And those are the people that I'm also like interviewing here uh, in the Women in Tech podcast. But yeah, it, it's so interesting. So <laughs> going back to, you know, our our questions, Let, let's go to the rapid fire questions, you know, like, and I want you to name a woman in tech that inspires you. I would say without a doubt, Hillary Mason, 
She lives in New York. She's a renowned data scientist. And she's just, first of all, she's like such a sweet and kind and fun person. And also she's just brilliant. And she has created a couple of companies. She's now, uh, she created Fast Forward Labs and uh, she was an advisor at Accenture Labs, but she also has a, a company now that is trying to uh, build uh, artificial intelligence to for storytelling uh, so that young people can create their own games like video games and and anyways this really kind of playful concept so I, I I really like Hillary because she is brilliant easy to talk to grounded very good at explaining uh, things and complexity in many topics and just a really fun person to be around. Hilary Mason. <laughs> Great. A book that you recommend or the latest book that you enjoy? Well, I am actually writing my own book on a superpower character uh, that has quantum uh, powers and it's for uh, young women but of course adults can read it so hopefully that should be out by next year and, and I could recommend that but in the meantime I'm going to say I, I, I love that you're raising your hand for yourself I think women <laughs> yes. should do more yes. more if often. not you who right yes and I loved meeting um, a woman named Linda Lucas and the last name is L-I- U-K-A-S. And she wrote a book called Hello Ruby. And it's about uh, computing. She kind of wrote it for kids, but it's also for, you know, young adults or adults. And it has games and it's a story of how she grew up learning how to code. And it's just a beautiful visual story that teaches coding in a very fun and unexpected way. So I really like that book. Hello Ruby. Nice. I, I I love teaching myself to code different languages. So I definitely gonna check that out. So how the community can help? How how the women in tech community can help you support you? Yeah, so you can definitely uh, follow me uh, on Instagram, Twitter. I'm at Debbie Berry, which is D as in David, E-B-B-I-E, -B -B and then B as in uh, uh, be as in boy, E-R-E, Debbie Berry. And uh, I please, like, um, you know, collaborate with me, ask me uh, questions, uh, uh, follow me and invite me to speak at your company or at your event. I love, I do a lot of public speaking online and in person. Uh, there's just always so many ways in which I uh, enjoy working with people and mentoring more women. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and it's going to be linked in the show notes. So if you are resonating with Debbie and you want to get to know more about her, please follow her on social media for sure. So how, how can we, how can our listeners can stay in touch? I imagine through social media would be the best, right? Yeah, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, I, you can easily, I answer most messages on uh, Twitter, I, although I don't know now what's going to happen with Twitter, but, uh, you know, in Instagram, Facebook, it's how, whatever social media you use, except for TikTok, uh, <laughs> but because uh, I'm, I'm not using it. But 
you know, just uh, reach out and I'm very happy to answer individual direct messages. Perfect. Thank you so much, Debbie, for being here and for being part of the Women in Tech podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yes. <laughs> and thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast. To connect and collaborate with more incredible women in tech around the world, remember to go to womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. Say hello on socials at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. We will see you in the next episode. Bye. Hi, this is Debbie Berevicious. I'm the first Mexican woman to get a PhD in physics from Stanford. I'm originally from Mexico City and currently living in Finland. You are listening to Women in Tech. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.